0: Hi, everyone. It's Tom Hoare. Thanks for joining us for another episode of our BNY Mellon Perspectives podcast series. We've got a great one for you today. We recently hosted our inaugural Future First Forum, where we brought together industry experts and our own leaders here at the firm to talk about one of the most important topics of our time. And that's how financial companies and really every industry are working together to address environmental, social, and governance considerations, also known as ESG. We've seen a lot of activity in this space in the last two years, especially as the impacts of climate change, a global pandemic, and unprecedented issues around racial injustice have come to the forefront. But it's been a longtime priority for us at BNY Mellon. Being in business for more than 200 years has taught us a lot about sustainability, and we viewed it as a great privilege and a great responsibility to be a convener on this topic at our Future First Forum. And our keynote speaker at the forum was Mark Carney. Mark is the former governor of the Bank of England and currently the United Nations Special Envoy on Climate Action and Finance. He's an incredible leader. And for the conversation, he's joined by our very own Hanika Smits, our chief executive officer of BNY Mellon Investment Management. And there's so much in this conversation that I don't think you'll want to miss. Mark talks about how an ongoing series of crises from the financial crisis in 2008 all the way through the COVID-19 crisis today, has really caused him to reassess how he measures value and how society and the financial industry might need to do the same. For example, that might mean giving investors an incentive to support companies that might be carbon-heavy today so that those companies can take the measures they need to do to reduce emissions and their carbon footprint tomorrow and beyond. It might mean governments taking an approach to climate policy that creates more transparency and predictability for companies and investors. And overall, it might mean moving away from the notion that there has to be a trade-off between planet and profit or between the short and the long-term, because as we know, both matter in the context of ESG. So I really hope you enjoy this discussion. As always, we want your feedback. Listen, rate, review. Tell us what you think wherever you listen to your podcasts. We'll see you at the next episode. And please enjoy this conversation between Mark Carney and Hanneke Smits from BNY Mellon's Future First Forum. Thanks again.
1: Welcome and thank you for joining us today for a conversation with my esteemed guest, Mark Carney. My name is Hanneke Smits and I'm CEO of BNY Mellon Investment Management. I'd now like to welcome and introduce our speaker today. A world renowned economist, Mark served as governor of the Bank of England as well as governor of the Bank of Canada. I've had the honor and pleasure to work with Mark albeit quite briefly, during his final year at the Bank of England, on which board, or the court as it's known, I served as a non-executive director. He's currently the United Nations Special Envoy for Climate Action and Finance, and Finance Advisor for COP26 to the British Prime Minister. Most recently, he released a widely acclaimed book titled Values, Building a Better World for All which looks at the challenges of today's market society and sets out how societies need to reframe their values and reform markets accordingly. So with that, Mark, thanks for joining us here today. And I just want to start with the book. What led you to writing it? And can you please talk to us about the thinking behind the title, Values?
2: Uh, well, first, Hanika, thank you for having me. It's lovely to see you again. Uh, yes, we did work together for all too brief a period, uh, but you've gone on to bigger and better things, and I and I wrote a book. Um, so why did I uh, why did I write a book? Well, in part, it was uh, through my experience as a governor, both in Canada and the UK. Uh, I really, in the end, I was a governor during a period of crises. Uh, I started really at the start of the. Global financial crisis, Uh, I started in February of 2008. Bear Stearns failed uh, within uh, two weeks of that. Uh, And my last day at the bank uh, was uh, the Ides of March uh, of last year. And the last act at the bank was on Sunday evening, uh, an emergency swap line with uh, the Federal Reserve as part of the COVID uh, emergency response. Uh, So I wanted to use the opportunity of stepping back from uh, leadership or policy leadership to reflect on what were some of the common uh, drivers of these situations. Why? Why did we have uh, the various crises? Was Was there a common attribute to that? And And was there something to take from the response uh, that we had to the uh, credit crisis, to the COVID crisis, and and to the ongoing climate crisis that uh, could help accomplish the second part of the title, which is uh, building a better world for all? Um, and my thinking sort of centered in the end on this relationship between value value in the market, um, how we price things, how we value things, uh, and what, what can be valued in the market and what should be kept uh, aside, and our values as individuals, our values as a society. Um, and, and the essence of the title and um, is to have a bracket or a parentheses around the S, because that relationship can run in both directions. Uh, i will take one extreme, which is the run up to the uh, financial crisis of 2008. Um, The values of the market became paramount. Uh, We had a period of what one can term market fundamentalism, where the answer to problems in markets tended to be to build more markets uh, and to deregulate. So that's how we ended up with the world of CDO squared, uh, derivatives on derivatives, uh, underlying cash instruments. Um, And that undercut the the essence of the market, the social capital of the market, and led to some of the challenges that uh, we had. To flip it around more positively, and I'll finish with this, is that um, what we're seeing in the COVID crisis, where the the values of society coming to the fore, uh, individuals, the way they behaved, with solidarity and responsibility, fairness, a sense of fairness, uh, and also potentially, and I hope actually, with our response to the climate crisis, where uh, we're moving from a situation where it was a trade-off between the short and the long term, between planet and profit, to a hierarchy of values, a, a value of sustainability. And in that case, um, the value of the market, um, we can harness the power of the market to help uh, achieve uh, the values of society. So it, it tries to span all of that um, uh, and ground it not just in economic theory, but uh, uh, in, the, in the experience of uh, the crises that we've we've all been living through.
1: So I think what I'm hearing is sort of two things. That one is you believe that the financial services sector in particular uh, did learn some lessons that allowed it to actually step up to the challenges of the global COVID pandemic. And, and secondly, I think in your book you also uh, references that the COVID crisis resulted in creating what I think you frame as a policy framework for the common good. Um, and that if there are some lessons that can be applied from that, it's really to solve the biggest uh, challenge that we're facing, which is intergenerational, um, which you just uh, referenced of climate change. So can you just elaborate a bit more? What is that? What do you mean by that policy framework for the common goods and how can we apply it to the climate change crisis?
2: Yeah. Well, one of the, one of the points that made it's not original to me, but a uh, point I try to pick up on in the book is uh, a question of perspective. Um, and, um, From the perspective of the common good, it's not a utilitarian concept. So, in other words, it's not uh, on average uh, improvements, but uh, it's really looking at uh, the good of all in society. And uh, a point of perspective is uh, arguably we see most clearly when we see from the perspective of those who are most vulnerable uh, in society. So, a perspective on the economy is very different uh, if you're unemployed, or a perspective on the security services. Are uh, different if um, uh, if you're subject to some form of discrimination or to healthcare if you don't have access uh, to healthcare. So taking in all of those perspectives and to say um, maybe parenthetically, it's one of the things that we did try to do at the, uh, at the Bank of England um, was to go out and talk to um, uh, underrepresented groups, uh, the more difficult uh, economic parts of the country to understand really the totality of how the economy was doing and the impact of uh, all of our policies. Now, to, to go to the heart of your question, um, one of the things that uh, I think we did see, with, are seeing uh, still with the COVID crisis is a recognition that um, uh, we were all in the same storm, but not necessarily all in the same boat. Uh, The risk uh, that some of us uh, have been subject to, I mean, the risk that I'm subject to 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 personalize it is much less uh, in this room uh, working effectively through uh, a a computer uh, than it is obviously for a frontline worker or somebody who delivers my packages. And and the incidence of disease and, and hardship through the COVID crisis has fallen on those groups uh, disproportionately. Um, And uh, and that unfortunately maps to those who are in general more disadvantaged in society. So that sense of perspective, um, that recognition uh, of of, of some of the inequalities, uh, structural inequalities in society, I think have helped form some of the desire for the response uh, as we come out of COVID uh, and to try to bring uh, us up together. Okay, so that's one and we can come back to that if, if, if we wish. The, the, the perspective though for climate of those most vulnerable is um, partly those in countries um, uh, that have the biggest impact of, of, of climate change today. So seven, for example, the African continent does the least to contribute to climate change in terms of emissions but it is the most affected by it. Seven of the most affected countries are uh, African today from extreme weather events. But the real perspective is the perspective of those who will come after us, uh, those who are young today, who will bear the the brunt of uh, climate change, just the physical uh, effects, but also the economic effects if we don't address it. And it's having that sense of solidarity, that sense of perspective that then brings The opportunity to bring the future into the present um, and take action today to uh, reduce those risks, those impacts in the future, because and you know this well, is that it's much, much less expensive, much less costly to act today to address these challenges of the future. And in fact, um, to bring it back to that relationship between values and value, if it's clear that that's where society wants to go, and I would argue that it increasingly is. We you know, People want us to address climate change. 130 countries have now set net zero as their clear objective. Um, then we can organize ourselves and create value uh, value in the market uh, in order to uh, achieve that. And when I say the market, I just don't mean financial markets, but I mean within companies and for, uh, for workers and others. Uh, and that process, again, I, I, I do think that process is underway. Uh, and our challenge is to see it all the way all the way through.
1: So partly what you're saying is also a, a function of a perspective of, of time horizon, right? And the analogy yes. with COVID is also there because it's I think it's been observed by many. The cost of COVID will actually also be borne by the younger Generation. I'm already seeing that as well by sort of the impact it's having on education, on uh, getting into the workforce, on getting jobs, uh, and so on and so forth. And uh, what you're saying is that it's important to show solidarity with that generation, not just in uh, COVID, but also from from the perspective of climate change. And there's some real actions we can take now. Um, just perhaps turning to what countries are doing with the political landscape having changed quite considerably in the in the US and Europe recently thinking about brexit, yeah. um, as well as the uh, recently uh, appointed Biden administration. How do you actually then see climate policy uh, playing out over the next couple of years? We've also seen the recent US-China pledge, for example, leading to some rising optimism for COP26, which is taking place later in in, in 2022 and for which you're a financial advisor to to the UK government. So putting some of these different um, actions and events together, can you elaborate on the importance of um, the Biden's administration's actions to us China pledge, and actually, in a way, the role of international diplomacy.
2: Yeah, it's a hugely important set of issues. And uh, I guess the first thing to say is that uh, it's incredibly significant. The actions of both China and the United States in the last six months are incredibly significant. Uh, uh, I, I stand by what we were talking about earlier, which is we've had this broad movement towards sustainability uh, in our societies. It's manifest in uh, European countries. Um, uh, policy, UK policy, Canadian policy, policies in a variety variety of countries, but uh, it's critical that the largest uh, economies, the largest emitters, are full participants in this and really are leading it. And so, President Xi's commitment um, to net zero by 2060 for carbon in China that he made at the sec- at the um, Security Council, or the, sorry, the General Assembly of the UN uh, in September. Uh, landmark moment, first major emerging economy to do uh, anything like that. Uh, and then, of course, uh, the engagement of the Biden administration. Uh, you rightly referenced, Hanukkah, the uh, the recent uh, agreement uh, between, uh, brokered by Secretary Kerry between the U.S. and China on climate, uh, the Biden Climate Summit, um, uh, very important as well. Now, what, what can we expect? Um, and I think, first and foremost, the U.S. coming back into the Paris Agreement, which has happened the U.S. setting out clearly its objectives, the percentage of which uh, it will reduce greenhouse gas emissions by 2030, a near term target in climate terms, uh, incredibly important as a uh, in and of itself in terms of the impact on the environment, but also uh, I think throws down the, the gauntlet in a, in a constructive way to other advanced economies uh, to, uh, to do more. Uh, We've seen that with the UK already in advance with the UK's uh, pledge down 78% by 2035. We've seen it in the EU. We'll see from other uh, advanced economies. And it's that dynamic we need for success in Glasgow this November, in November 2021, um, which is is, is to have those economies that um, have had the largest historic emissions, have the largest emissions per capita, in other words, the advanced economies, to be making material pro- uh, um, high ambition material progress and in that process pulling in uh the major emerging economies uh alongside now um china will be critical as will be india uh, indonesia uh brazil uh in in uh, accelerating one of the things uh that uh, i'm very focused on and uh and, and I know you are um, uh, at the institution, is what's the role of the private sector and what's the role of private finance? So as countries get more and more serious about it, as the citizens are demanding it, as policy moves, what role can private finance play um, to, uh, uh, to invest in, to accelerate, to build uh, a more sustainable, uh, this move to a more sustainable economy? Uh, we're at a point... To, to sort of bring the the thoughts together, we're at a point where something which is an existential risk, if unaddressed, um, unaddressed climate change, uh, is turning into a major commercial opportunity. Um, that that risk uh, becomes value. Uh, the solution to the risk uh, becomes valued. After all, if you're solving the biggest risk of our time, uh, you're creating a lot of value as as part of the process. So this interplay between where you started rightly with the U.S. and China, I'm encouraged by the momentum there. And candidly, it's one of the only areas where there is cooperation between the U.S. and China at present, um, and, uh, and and hopefully, and it's, of course, the most, uh, in many respects, the most important area. If we can build on that private sector moving in behind, uh, we, we could make huge, huge progress
1: for Glasgow. And I think the private sector is moving right to and starting yes. to see it also, as you say, as a commercial opportunity, as an investment opportunity, not just as a um, a, a purpose that that companies need to lead, but just and, and I think what I'm hearing you say is diplomacy alone is is going to get us so far, which to some extent uh, was also the results or lack of results initially, perhaps from the 2000 and 15 Paris Agreement, which is clearly a resounding success from a diplomacy uh, perspective. Um, But in terms of effectiveness, I think there's there's a lot more that is starting to happen, but governments alone um, uh, can't, can't make the change happen. The private sector has to step in too. Now, having said that, I do think um, that there are some solutions and policies that can be adopted to to achieve results. And what do you see as examples of those?
2: Yeah. um, And actually, maybe I'll just underscore uh, part of what was the success of Paris, and then I'll go to the policies. Uh, What was great about Paris, and I think your description is exactly right, it was a success of climate financial diplomacy, and it absolutely had to happen. And and really, to me, three things came out of Paris. First was a very clear objective for the world of sub two degrees and this stretch target of one and a half degrees. So that's what 195 plus countries agreed to. Secondly, uh, the countries showed up with their best efforts domestically of what they were going to do to try to achieve it. And crucially, there was an objective add up of those policies. So they didn't show up and say, oh, this is solves the problem. In fact, they said, we want to get to less than two degrees, and when we add up what everyone says they're going to do, it's going to be 2.6 degrees, even if they do it all. And then there was slippage from there. That was the bad news, but at least it's subjective. We have a framework that's objective, And the third thing, which was the start, and I really underscore the start, was to bring in the private sector as part of this process in a much bigger way, in a much more structured way than before. Now, that last, all of those elements go into Glasgow. And your question, the issue you put on the table is, what's the relationship between policy? I, the way I look at it is, what's the relationship between policy and what happens in the private sector? And what's the relationship, if I can borrow a, a phrase you, or word you put in uh, earlier, which is around companies with purpose? And so a company that has a sense of purpose, has a sense of, and I know, uh, you know your leadership uh, around ESG and the broader set of discussions if you're aware of your environment, you're aware of what your stakeholders want, you're aware that, and that's part of your purpose, you're anticipating where society wants to go and also where policy will probably go in order to achieve it. Now, what are the policies that are most effective at this stage? I think one of the things, and this is a point Janet Yellen and I made uh, six months or so ago, uh, uh, before we before, you knew, she was going to go on to even greater things. Maybe she knew. She probably did know at the time, I suppose. Uh, but was uh, we wrote a, a long paper, which I can distill into a couple of sentences, which is that if you have credible and predictable policy, the financial sector, and uh, the most importantly, the real economy, will pull forward adjustment. Um, now, in uh, my old life, I'll explain that. in my old life as a central banker, <clears throat> one of the most important things was the market could anticipate broadly which direction you were going to go, when you would broadly raise interest rates, when you would broadly how you would we would react to changes in the economy. And then the market would do a lot of that work for us because they would reprice interest rates and uh, market interest rates and reprice other securities, which would affect, uh, what happened, uh, and it made it easier for us to adjust. If you had credibility and, and a degree of predictability, um, it's the same with climate. Now, uh, let me get a couple of examples of this. Uh, for example, in Europe, uh, the ban on internal combustion engine uh, new vehicles after 2030. That is, uh, that's predictability. I'm an automaker. I'm going to sell into the European market. I have one, maybe two, maximum model years that I or, or models that I can produce with internal combustion engines to still sell, but I know that I really want to put all my effort into electric vehicles for the European markets, including charging infrastructure, including my work with suppliers. So I've got a future signal, which tells me today what I should do and and that's driving innovation and investment. Um, I'm I'm joining you from Canada. Uh, We have a carbon price of $30 a ton today. Mildly interesting. What's important, is the government is legislating, legislating that that price will go to $170 by the end of the uh, decade. So businesses know, so what's not, the, the $31 price is interesting, the 170 is significant uh, for the business, and, and business investment is going to be driven off of that. So it's those types of policies. It doesn't always have to be a carbon price. It can be regulation. It can be requirements for fuel um, uh, standards or emission standards. And even uh, public investment in certain technologies, uh, such as hydrogen, such as aspects of carbon capture, which signal the importance or the opportunity that's there, all of those policies can help um, accelerate the investment that we need to get to uh, where we need to go to.
1: Well, by putting some of those policies in place, it's really forcing companies to review how they allocate capital, how to put their budgets together exactly. and where they're going to invest and where, where they're going to disinvest. Because your example of um, carbon pricing in, in yeah. Canada then clearly becomes a disincentive over the long term. And then companies have to act and, and come up with a plan. You also mentioned the markets. And again, that I think that's a feature in your book as well. Your yeah. your profound belief that um, that in in your belief in the market's ability to solve problems, right? So if we think about the markets, um, and if if they're going to help us uh, to join the battle. Um, against climate change, do you actually think we're ready from an infrastructure perspective, which I know you'll have a view on from your previous roles, to accommodate actually the necessary investment to achieve net zero?
2: It's a great question. And I think the answer is we're getting there, but we're not fully ready. Um, So, for example, um, one of the things that we've been working on really only over the course of the last five years has been consistent and comprehensive climate disclosure. So not just what a company's um carbon footprint is today but how it's going to manage it tomorrow and how um, senior managers like yourself how how it's uh it's 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 managed and uh and optimized and where the opportunities are now the tcfd which uh, you've been a supporter from uh, uh from the start uh is on the pathway to becoming mandatory it's one of our objectives for cop26 for all the major economies to basically have the same type of climate disclosure as we have for financial disclosure. There's a framework for that. It's called the TCFD. The UK is going to legislate it. Switzerland's putting it in place. New Zealand, others, uh, and uh, Japan on a comply or explained basis. Uh, and actually, the IFRS, which of course does uh, the county disclosure rules for 140 countries, is uh, very likely, almost certainly, going to develop climate disclosure rules for those countries as well. So that's that's a building block, but that's that's part of the infrastructure. It's, not, it's necessary, but not sufficient. Uh, we also need to have um, uh, taxonomies and indices that are focused on the transition. I mean, it is useful to be clear. It is useful to be defined about what is green, but this is a transition. It is a journey from where we are today, which unfortunately is relatively brown as an economy and we need to move through the, 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 the color scheme uh, from brown to olive to uh, light green to uh, you know, kelly green, if you will, and, and, and a taxonomy or a way of representing uh, the progress that's there. Because, Hanukkah, I mean, you may be in a position as an investment manager where you see an opportunity uh, where there's an alignment between a company that is decarbonizing, has the sorry, has the potential to decarbonize with a big investment, it could be in the steel industry, it could be in the auto industry. And at the point you make the investment, your carbon footprint as an investor goes up because you've invested in somebody who, in a few years from now, will be able to decarbonize and you're making uh, a huge contribution to the planet. You're also putting yourself in a position where you've invested in somebody who's going to be more competitive and profitable. That's your expertise. We need the infrastructure so that you are at a minimum not penalized for that from a carbon accounting perspective so that you get credit for the future. And there's there's ways to do that. Things like uh, portfolio warming uh, uh, techniques and others that are being developed. So all of that sort of infrastructure needs to be put in place. It is in process with experts such as yourselves. Uh, and, and uh, you know, we need to finish the job on that. Last point. I mean, there's more to do, but is that we also need some new markets. Uh, there are some missing markets here. And um, and I am a believer in markets properly structured. And one of those missing markets is is for carbon offsets. Um, we have 1,300, and it'll be more uh, soon, of our largest companies around the world who have net zero targets. Some of them have net negative targets. Microsoft would be a prominent example in that journey from where they are today to getting emissions down absolute emissions down there is value in in reducing the overall footprint over time the net in net zero and the only way to do that is through offsets and we need a credible market for that we don't have it yet Uh, that infrastructure is being put in place for that market we're looking to launch something by the end of the year uh, and grow it pretty quickly and this is a you know, potentially a hundred billion dollar a year market from basically nothing, uh, and as you well know, with markets, it you know they work if they're credible. They work if they have the uh, uh, the infrastructure, uh, and uh, and and that's why we have the best working on on, on putting that in place. So uh, there is a lot of work still to be done. Uh, there's a lot of work in train. Uh, and uh, I, I think, uh, so the optimist in me is, uh, is very positive about it. Uh, and the only caveat is that uh, as with everything in climate, we, we don't have that much time and we need to we need to really move this at pace.
1: Yeah, no, I think you're right. Time is not really on our side. And that, that point um, I think is hitting home for governments around the world as well as companies. I do want to pick up on some of the observations you made around taxonomy And and measurement. Um, I think, as as you've also stated, how we measure value is critical, but there's some, I think, considerable challenges around clarity and standardized nomenclature um, and metrics and how we hold companies accounts now to account. Now, the EU rules uh, that have been Introduced, I, I think, are a bold step towards a more comprehensive view of fiduciary duty. But how, how bold of a step do you think they are? And how critical is it also that regulators around the world actually align around a common set of metrics and taxonomy?
2: I think it's. I think it's important. I think. Uh, I, I, I think it's important that they align broadly around similar taxonomies. I would be. I, I think my years um, being involved in regulation suggest to me that uh, I'd be surprised if, if if they fully align around uh, around taxonomies. Um, and uh, but it is I, to me is exceptionally important for uh, some form of taxonomy that has at its heart uh, the transition um, and and this decarbonization, this movement, as opposed to a binary taxonomy or only us only having a binary taxonomy and I, I'll, I'll make it tangible in a maybe non-standard way which when I think of my colleagues at um at, at the central banks uh, my former colleagues at the central banks now and both the Bank of England European Central Bank with explicit uh efforts to uh incorporate climate change not just into their supervision activities of banks and insurers but into the way they conduct monetary policy uh They are they have one of the challenges they have is uh, not having adequate taxonomies of third parties that they can use to then differentiate between assets in in the market. Um, And they don't want to be the capital allocators, but equally as they need some market neutral standard um, and they need a standard that 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 captures the transition, not just the end state. So that's that's one example. It's a microcosm example of a much. Uh, a much bigger uh, set of issues. I, I think the, so the taxonomy issue, Europe's led on it without question. The core taxonomy has value, but it doesn't have as broad a value as, it, uh, as, as what we need. So we may need another instrument. Um, I think we can make progress through the private sector on uh, using science-based targets, which are climate pathways by sector, and actually aggregating them through portfolio warming and other techniques that remains to be seen. But if we can get consensus around that, that would be helpful. Um, But I'll make a last comment, which um, just kind of overarches all of this, which is um, there will always be an issue around uh, um, these approaches, whether they're disclosure or taxonomy, uh, where the common elements are building blocks and that different jurisdictions, uh, different societies, is a better way to put it, may have uh, uh, on top of that foundation uh, additions. Uh, Because in the end, um, part of this is an expression of values. And uh, if I can can bring it, not necessarily taxonomy, but bring it back to disclosure, um, in the end, TCFD disclosure, core climate disclosure, the way uh, most of us think about it is with respect, ultimately, to the enterprise value of a of, of a company. So, at some point, the the the, the impact of uh, being on the wrong side of the carbon price, uh, for example, uh, will hit the value of the underlying business. And if we have that information, markets can judge and pull it today. Um, but there is a school of thought, particularly in Europe, about also assessing double materiality. So, the impact of the company on the climate or on nature itself, uh, even if that does not necessarily come back to the value of the company today, um, except through some risk of so, on social license, those judgments uh, may be different by, by jurisdiction, by, by society, which is why that we can get to a degree of commonality, uh, but I think there still will be some tailoring uh, in, different, uh,
1: in, in different places. So sort of summarizing uh, TCFD and disclosures are helping markets and market participants understand the risk that is in the system or inherent in companies as they're on a path to transition. So for example, for you know the, the the fossil fuel sector to actually understand the value or the lack of value of what are going to be stranded assets and and how they um, work through that or for insurance companies to understand the liabilities that they may be facing because of climate change I think all of that comes out through TCFD and allows market participants to better understand the financial impact. Uh, that that is going to have on the companies that that are being assessed. I think the other piece is is what you're saying is there aren't really good benchmarks yet um, for how we measure uh, the goods that a company can do uh, by helping us to get to a planet or a way of living that is more sustainable.
2: Yeah, I I think that's right. Um, those measures are being developed. And so the double materiality, uh, if you will, the impact on, uh, for example, on biodiversity, uh, uh, there are efforts through, and, and there, there are reporting frameworks, uh, the GRI, the general reporting framework, uh, uh, the GRI uh, framework of, of, of reporting is, is, is one example of that. I think that the IFRS process for the so-called Sustainability Standards Board, um, which will be an open process um, uh, over the course of the next few years, uh, a lot of these discussions will be at the heart of what is enterprise value relevant, as you rightly say, TCFD relevant, uh, if you will, uh, or consistent, uh, and what uh, goes beyond that. And that... Certain jurisdictions will apply only the former and others will apply the latter as well. And this is a question, though, uh, I think we may be surprised to what extent um, uh, more and more apply all of, all, all of this type of disclosure. Of course, it has to be provided with some framework. And let me, let me give one reason for that, which is one of the things I think we have learned um, in, uh, in, in recent years is uh, this concept of dynamic materiality. So there are certain issues that weren't relevant five years ago, 10 years ago. Um, but all of a sudden do become relevant to the value of a, of of a company. Um, uh, I, I certainly, and, and maybe it doesn't happen overnight, but it happens within uh, the case of a few years. So you see, for example, in, um, uh, in some jurisdictions, US, an example uh, on uh, diversity and uh, much, much clearer approach and more effective approaches, effective, not just words, but actions in terms of company, uh, the diversity of management, diversity of boards, diversity, true diversity inclusiveness within companies uh, brought to the fore in a way that impacts um, broader stakeholder perceptions uh, and valuations of, uh, of, of, of companies there. We've seen it with climate uh and we'll increasingly see it with climate i think and uh, and potentially biodiversity and nature uh for the impact it has on um on on value um maybe not today but uh, prospectively in the future
1: i know you're you're right I mean, certainly from looking at this through the investment lens uh it's hard for me not to do that. As CEO of an investment management company, a lot of us have, you know, are, are clearly very focused on considering the environmental, social, and, and governance issues as as we evaluate companies. And to your point, there's been a lot of focus on the S&G and it's now transferring to the E as well. I think one topic um, that gets debated in the space is the effectiveness of shareholder engagement. So, thinking about um, the example you mentioned of diversity, typically as shareholders you can actively use your vote by voting for or against, say, certain director appointments. So, if you're not seeing that diversity um, is being achieved, you could vote against certain director uh, appointments. I think that that's proven so far a little bit harder perhaps on the E of the ESG, with the possible exception of some of the um, transition plans that we've started to see some companies uh, publish. So how, you know, how do you suggest that investment managers hold companies to account so that we can actually make progress?
2: It's a great, it's a great question. Very live issue, uh, as you know, and one of the developments is uh, is explicit uh, votes on those transition plans, um, a so-called say on transition. Uh, there's been a number of companies, um, major companies, Unilever would be an example, I think probably was the first one, as in many things in sustainability, actually Unilever the first one, uh, but 15 or so major companies, um, largely UK, uh, North America, with votes on uh, that have volunteered voluntarily having votes on transitions so not proxy um uh, proxy battles on that and, and explicitly on their transition plans now it's a um i think it's a very interesting argument I, it goes um I, it goes to the question of how successful have been for example say on pay um uh, resolution advisory resolution where we have in the uk as you well know um, a formal structure for that and a And uh, a a a a a convention, I think, is the way I would put it in terms of certain thresholds. You don't; it doesn't have to be um, defeated the pay proposal, but there are certain thresholds where it becomes uncomfortable or or deemed inappropriate for boards if sufficient shareholders uh, have have voiced or voted against. Uh, And so that's possible with transition plans. It's possible with transition plans. Uh, I just to give the both sides of the argument, I think one aspect of this is that in the end, this is strategy and you're voting on core element of strategy and our shareholders reaching, you know, through the veil of, of governance into, uh, into, into, uh, running the company. Um, I, I can see the, arg- I can see the argument. However, uh, uh, it's, uh, it, uh, the 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 importance of this and the importance of this for uh the investors own the increasing importance of this for the investors own stakeholders uh suggests that there needs there does need to be heavy engagement on transition uh, transition plans going forward uh as they move from transition objectives to actual plans so i think the first is uh you know the most formal is this uh is 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 an actual vote structure let's see how these rounds of votes go over the course of the year. Um, but the active engagement on these issues uh, will be will be increasingly important. And I, I I would say, you know, it's interesting with two years ago, Hanukkah, I, 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 you have this perspective as well. I, I, I've heard from a number of CEOs that would say that uh, oh, it's interesting. I raise climate as a longer term issue. No shareholder ever raises it with me. Um, as a CEO, I don't run into any CEOs who uh, <laughs> uh, say that anymore. Uh, so the engagement is clearly there, um, and the question is, uh, how much more should it be uh, structured?
1: Yeah, no, I agree with that. I, I think they're all they're all focused on it, but it's then about as shareholders as well about assessing the credibility of those transition plans that that are being put to us. And to your point, what is the role of the shareholder versus say the role of the boards? Uh, in in, in that regard as well. So just shifting back maybe sort of for for some of the final questions here uh, to to value. So how important in in this backdrop is it for companies to reset really their social and strategic actions um, to reflect the values that clients and investors are increasingly demanding, moving away from pure financial values?
2: Yeah, I think the... Well, it's important it, it's ultimately a question of how one runs a company to an extent one runs company with a sense of purpose and alignment with stakeholders and the way I, I guess to take a step back the way i at least my experience in studying of the uh uh of the evidence as well has been that uh this broad alignment with values values of stakeholders uh, broad alignment with esg and it's you know look lots of challenges in measurement but if we if, if we get to the heart of it um the outperformance comes from a, a, a number of areas, and one of them is uh, uh, the management that tends to focus on these issues also tends to think about broader, structural, longer-term changes in, in the economy. So uh, they're focused on sustainability, but they're also recognizing that... Um, you know, the digital revolution, changes in machine learning, artificial intelligence are having these structural changes. so they're're they're, they're they're more strategic and more prepared for broader shifts. that's first. The second is I do think that they um, uh, the impact and there's more and more evidence of this um, the impact on employees and other stakeholders and the alignment that comes from that and the quality that comes uh, from that is one of the things I go through in the book is, about this distinction you know the classic sorry to be an economist for a second but the classic element of theory of the firm is all about the relative costs of contracts uh, external contracts versus uh, internal norms you 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 can push out the influence of the corporation if you have clear purpose and alignment uh with your with, with your stakeholders and 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 often those alignment uh comes around values uh you know the last uh, point is is more of a defensive one but it's no less relevant for it is and it goes back to what we were talking about a few minutes ago which is there are some elements in society values in society that no they're not material today um but they could be material tomorrow and they could you know we do get these situations where there's jump to default if you will with social license and the extreme damage that is done to companies uh if they if they step uh step afoul uh, of that. Um I mean we have um we have an example um uh you know the in, in, in this week when we're having this discussion with uh, with football in europe uh which is a total misread uh by the business side of uh, these institutions, of the values of their stakeholders, their clients, but also, uh, uh, I, from my read of uh, the commentary of uh, their players and uh, and senior management on the on, on the pitch, so that's an example of something that is value driven that one wouldn't have thought necessarily affected the underlying economics, but is put to put to the test. Absolutely has uh, so. Uh, there, there, there's multiple, multiple channels through which uh, which this this comes.
1: I agree with you, and there's also a lot that's been changed over the course of our careers. So, just uh, thinking about sort of the next uh, generation coming into finance, while I think over the last three mm. decades or so. Um, there's been an enormous amount of change with respect to technology, regulatory environment, necessary skills, but also to what you're just talking about. I think the, or at least in my observation, this generation has a far greater consciousness with respect to the challenges that are being faced by society more broadly. And they're very keen to live their values. So knowing that and given these changes, um, I have no doubts that Um, Someone with your background uh, is often asked for advice by students or people looking to enter uh, financial services or or any sector. And I'm sort of curious what advice you might either give your own 23-year-old self today or or younger people today as, as they think about their career.
2: Uh, It's interesting. Uh, It's, I mean, it's a great question. Oh, if I could go back to my 23 year (laughs) old. All the things I would have done. Um, But, um, you know, I, I do think, and you've seen it, I I know I've seen it from your career and uh, I, I believe I've lived this uh, in mine. Uh, It is exceptionally important uh, to work with people uh, you respect and organizations that uh, whose value, whose values you share. And, and and you know the most unhappy people and unfortunately i've worked with some very unhappy people over the years are those who've tried to force themselves into a situation because they think it's the right thing to do or because they think they'll make more money or I mean life is life is very short you know days might be long but the years are are, are short and um and and move forward. And, it, and the, the it, it sounds trite but it really is true that the the success comes from that that alignment uh, and part of the way you can judge that alignment is the, just the people you're going to be working with. That's that's the first thing. The second big point I think I would make in advice is that there are, there are big shifts. There are big structural shifts that happen. Um, the past is not necessarily prologue, and you think of the shifts that we've been through in terms of geopolitics followed the Berlin Wall and everything that changed with that, this rise of openness and globalization, this fundamental change on the digital side uh, and how you know all the the huge economic changes are happening with that. And we're at the cusp, or just at the start of that sustainable revolution, which will change the way business is done um, and the way we live in ways, some ways we can anticipate, but many we can't. Uh, and in parallel, um, uh, you know, machine learning, artificial intelligence, revolution. So, uh, but in those circumstances, when you're going to have uh, to bring the two together, when you're going to have those big changes, the more you're working with people you value in a situation you care about, or for an objective, you care about a purpose you can identify. That's another key test. Uh, the more successful you'll be through those uh, big changes and the more you'll just enjoy yourself and, and I guess the last thing is one of the most important things um, for health and success is to sleep at night. Uh, and it's much easier to sleep at night if you think you're uh, doing, uh, you know, doing the right thing. And uh, one of the great joys I had uh, when you and I were at the uh, Bank of England uh, was the purpose was to uh, uh, promote the good of the people. of the United Kingdom. I mean, it's, it's, you know, if that's what you're trying to do day in, day out, it's, it's easier to rest uh, in the evening.
1: No, it's a fantastic cause to 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 align to, to 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 get rallied around. And I agree with you that you have to start with the people and not folks. Sometimes sometimes individuals can be unduly focused on something that may look good in the short term, but are making the wrong trade yeah. for the long term. And it does come down to the people. And as you say so eloquently, uh, the, the purpose. Uh, Of of what you want to achieve, as well as whether that aligns to the people you'll be working with or the institution you'll be working for. So, Mark, it's been a real pleasure uh, to be speaking to you on the opportunities and challenges in addressing climate change. And um, I'm really heartened by the growing commitment from global organizations, regulators, actually, leaders like yourself. that are really coming together to tackling these issues head on, which I think is not only encouraging, but I would actually posit it's really critical. We we really all need to join hands internationally, public, private, third sector uh, all together. I wholeheartedly agree with you um, uh, on, on that point. Uh, so thank you again for taking the time today. It's good to see you.
0: Thank you. Honey. Hi, everyone. Tom here again. I hope you enjoyed that conversation between Mark and Hanneke, and we're excited to keep working with our clients and experts across every industry to put the future first when it comes to ESG. Thanks for being with us for this episode. We hope you'll keep listening on Apple, Spotify, Google, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And as always, we're grateful if you'd share your feedback. Leave a review or a rating. Tell us what you think. Tell us what you'd like to hear more about on social media, LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and of course on bnymelon.com. We appreciate you joining as always. We're grateful to you as listeners and we'll see you at the next episode.